If you want to open up to uh, Romans chapter 1, that's going to be our passage tonight, is, is verse uh, 8 through 17. Um, in, uh, in the 3rd century, uh, actually technically I think that would be the 4th century, about 350 AD, uh, a, a man named Didymus the Blind uh, from uh, Alexandria uh, was uh, renounced as a heretic uh, and eventually uh, killed. Um, he was a heretic, by the way. The things that he believed in were just nonsense. But um, before he found that, uh, that end, he was a professor at kind of the equivalent of an early Bible college. Uh, it, was called a, um, it was called a catechetical school. Catechetical? I don't know. Um, that's where they taught catechism. Um, and uh, kind of the, the equivalent of an early Bible college. Uh, he was a professor there, and uh, he he taught all kinds of weird doctrine about reincarnation, about uh, uh, that Jesus was uh, was related to Satan. Just kind of all it, it was weird. One of the things that he uh, started uh, at that Bible college was that he taught his students to refer to themselves uh, as kleros, uh, which is a Greek word that uh, that we would now translate clergy or cleric. Um, he taught them to refer to themselves as clerics. Uh, it was a word that meant inherited ones. Uh, they're, they're part of the family. And then he would, they would refer to everybody else uh, as laos, uh, which we would now pro- pronounce laity. You've heard of the clergy, laity, right? Um, I think of all the terrible doctrine that Didymus came up with, that might be the worst. The, uh, this is this is trouble. We'll talk about it some more. Uh, but really what, what he did there and, and what took root in that crop of Christian leaders uh, was an idea that some are holy enough to lead in a church and some are not. Uh, that they're, uh, Some are, are called and others uh, are allowed to just sit and receive. Some are producers and others are consumers. Uh, and that's an idea that has stuck through history. Uh, when the church gathered, uh, I've, I've actually been in churches uh, recently here in Spokane where um, we, we did a youth event and we wanted to serve communion. And, uh, and the, the pastor was a, a denominational church. The pastor says, well, we can, but I have to be there. I have to, to come and serve. And I go, oh, well, why? He says, well, because I've been ordained. Uh, you have to be an ordained pastor. And I go, oh, that's okay. I'm ordained. And he goes, well, you have to be ordained in our denomination in order to serve communion. And it was, it, it turned out to be kind of an inside joke later, but um, the, uh, the idea that he was holy enough to administer this bread, it, it was Dave's killer bread. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, they had budget cuts or something, but he, he broke off pieces of Dave's killer bread. The idea that he was holy enough to hand that out and somebody else wasn't was kind of laughable. Um, what this has morphed into in the years since Didymus the Blind of Alexandria is that um, there's a system in which the clergy get paid to do the work of the church and the rest of the people, the laity, pay for it, but they don't participate in it. This, this is true uh, across denominations and, and really across cultures uh, that we have this divide between the workers and uh, the consumers. Now, uh, a lot of uh, good Christian folks uh, don't wholly subscribe to that. They, regardless of being part of what would be called a lady, they, they aren't fully consumers. They, they try to produce and they try to give, but there's these kind of uh, unwritten rules about who is and isn't called. Uh, the Bible, as in opposition to this doctrine, says that uh, the body functions when every part is playing its part. First Corinthians 12, that um, if, if the hand goes missing, well, what are we going to do? Like every, every part has a job to do. Um, and so that, that kind of clergy-lady divide just really isn't going to work at Antioch. Like, I have a, another job besides this. I, I don't have time to do all the things that clergy would typically do. And so if, if somebody, some, somebody from the lady doesn't step up, 
we're going to get in trouble. Um, I'll say this a couple times tonight. My, my intent isn't to do away with clergy. My intent is to do away with lady. Like, there should be no such thing as this lady. Like, the, the, the consuming, um, pew-sitting, let somebody else do it for me mindset. Shouldn't exist. Um, as we talk about Romans, one of the most important things that we need to understand about Paul, who's the writer of Romans, is that he saw himself uh, as a missionary. He, he defined himself as an apostle, one who is sent on a mission. So for you, like what, what image comes to mind when, when you think of missionary? Give me just a one word. We'll play a little game here. One word. When I say missionary, you say what? Mormon. Mormon. <laughs> Paul. Africa. Africa. Okay. Serve. Serve. We're playing word association. I'm completely understanding your psyches right now. Um, just kidding. Man. I'm really bad at psychology. Blues Brothers. <laughs> I, I say missionary, you say Blues Brothers. That's good. Okay. That gives me an insight. No, I, I'm with you. Brainwave. We're on a mission from God. It's good. Um, how about this? If, uh, if you moved out of your house, I don't, I don't know where all of you live, but some of you, if you um, like uprooted your family, pack up all your, your, your belongings and move out, and a missionary moves into your house, what would they do first? That's not a rhetorical question. They paint. Okay. <laughs> In, in, in line with their missionary duties, what would they do in your neighborhood? It's good. Make friends with, friends with the neighbors. Okay. You talk a lot about Jesus. It's, it's a bit of a condemning question, only in that when I answer it, my immediate, like, logical next step is, crap, why haven't I done those things then? Like, we, we live right next to a triplex, and right on the other side of that is a building with five apartments in it, and I know one of those families. But if I were really thinking like a missionary, not only would I know them, but I would know what they need. I would know how to, like, what bus routes their kids take to school, and I would, I would know when, like, when they need help. No, I'm serious. That, not, not in a weird, like, okay, that's weird. Um, I, I would know uh, not only their names, but their needs. Um, and so the conversation in our house churches this week, if, if you were at uh, a house church, is that um, when God gets a hold of your heart in a, in a real transformation, then that internal transformation leads to an external transformation. And when God really gets a hold of, of what you believe and think in your identity who you are then that in, like inevitably leads to changed actions to the extent that I could say if your actions don't change has your heart really changed internal transformation always leads to external transformation it's uh, let me say it this way it's impossible uh, to be a missionary before God transforms your heart. We talked about that last week, that uh, if, if God hasn't transformed you, then you just don't have the tools to be on mission. You'll burn yourself out. But um, it's impossible to be a missionary before God transforms your heart, but it's impossible not to be a missionary after he transforms your heart. Because once that transformation has happened, inevitably, your actions change. You start to see the world in the same way that Jesus did, in the same way that Paul did and Peter did. This internal transformation always leads to external transformation. That's it. Like, I'm done. That's, that's, we could honestly just stop there. I won't because I'm, I worked hard on this. Thank you very much. But um, that's, that's the whole point. If you're transformed on, on the inside, then you're transformed, you, or you will be transformed on the outside. And if you haven't been transformed on the outside, then it's time to ask some serious <coughs> questions about whether you've been transformed on the inside. Paul's experience as a missionary is so far removed from our experience as Christians, isn't it? Like, go read 2 Corinthians sometimes, where, where he, he lists all the things that happened to him in, in the course of his missionary journeys. It's rocks thrown at his head, and shipwrecked, and 
uh, flogged, uh, he's beaten with rods and whipped 39 times on multiple occasions. Um, in, in comparison with modern Christianity, which in, in my estimation has really been about just kind of lowering the bar on Christianity. Um, we call it the seeker-sensitive movement, which essentially treats Christians as consumers. And says that the church can can meet the custom, the church that can meet their needs the best wins, right? Kids ministries with, with big screens and, and like animatronic animals and um, a, a nice coffee stand in the foyer and uh, at the door. Um, worship that makes you like feel things. Um, sermons about how to have a, a better marriage and six easy steps. Like, I, I want to be clear, I don't think any of those things standing on their own are, are bad things. But I th what I do think is bad is what they lead us into strategy-wise. In, in terms of strategy, what that makes us think is that whoever can do the best job of meeting those needs wins. When the Bible says something absolutely opposite of that. When our strategy to make disciples is essentially just give them what they want so they won't leave for the church up the street, then I think we've really missed the point and we shouldn't be surprised when we're not making disciples, but instead we're making consumers. Uh, for those of you that are caught in this, and <coughs> full disclosure, I think all of us to, to some extent are. Uh, when, we, when we evaluate a church, we're asking, like, what do they have for my kids? I want to make sure my kids are taken care of. Is the coffee good? I mean, if we're going to serve coffee, it might as well be good. Um, and, and to some extent, like, I, uh, I want to uh, commiserate a little bit. This is part of our, our human nature. But as much as I can sympathize with that, I, I also want to caution you that consumerism and Christianity are incompatible. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. If Jesus said, whoever wants to follow me, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. And so this idea that, that we can have consumerism and Christianity, that we'll be discipled and have all of our desires met, is just kind of laughable. We call it, uh, we, uh, I, when I'm feeling really snarky, I call it cruise ship Christianity. Um, cruise ships, any, who's been on a, a cruise carnival princess? Any? My parents did this thing. After each of, of their sons got married, they sent us on a cruise. Except for you guys, apparently, you didn't count. Um, yeah. I guess we know who's the favorite. Um, no, we uh, went on a cruise. Uh, Adrian and I went down the Baja coast of California and Mexico. It was wonderful. We got a sunburn the first day, and so spent the entire rest of the week in our you know, cabin. Um, we were also newlyweds. That's not the only reason we were in the cabin. Um, what? Okay. <laughs> um, the reason I, I call consumeristic Christianity cruise ship is not because it was a terrible, terrible experience. Uh, it's because of the way the cruise ships came about. Do you know the story? Um, so uh, America, its, it's uh, military strength used to be in its navy. Uh, in, in the Civil War, in World War II, America had the most powerful navy in the world. Um, but at, a, at one point, um, Military tactics moved away from the Navy and more toward uh, air. So the Air Force became where the Army was pouring its money. And, and so uh, just in strictly budgetary concerns, uh, the Navy after World War II was, was cut drastically. And so uh, they had these massive ships that all of a sudden had no use. They, they had a use before. They were designed to, to go to a specific area and blow something up. But now they didn't have a use. And so some enterprising genius, uh, I wish I knew his name or her name, uh, said, you know what we could do? We could put a water slide on that thing. And a bar. And just like, just drive it in circles. Somebody's going to pay good money to get on that. I'm serious. This is how cruise ships, like the, the very first cruise ships were retired Navy vessels. Cruise ship Christianity is where we take something that really had a purpose. It was designed to go somewhere and blow something up. And instead we go, let's, let's put a really nice coffee shop in it. 
And instead of let's go, go somewhere, let's just drive in circles. Because we've got to keep people happy. We don't want to get into any dangerous waters. You see the, the metaphor here? Cruise ship Christianity. It's, it's killing the church. It's killing the church. <coughs> any Christianity that attracts with big promises of comfort and attractive ease are the opposite of what Jesus taught. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, leave your family behind. Take up your cross. The Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay down his head at night. There's no room in, in what Jesus invites us into for lukewarm, cruciate Christianity. And yet, modern Christianity, in every direction that I look, is trying to, to lower this bar. I will say, I think that we recognize this. Just on a deep, like a, on a soul level, we're aware of this. And, and this may be part of what pe makes people uncomfortable about church. Right? The, like, that's the number one complaint against Christians, is that they're hypocrites. Um, I think, on some level, we feel the hypocrisy of reading a book that sends us as battleships, and yet our lives look a lot more like cruise ships. There's a, a, a hypocrisy in that. I almost said a hip-hopocrisy. <laughs> Way different. There's a hypocrisy in that, and our souls really rebel against this. We can feel this tension of being called as soldiers and yet being sent nowhere. Even a cursory reading of the Bible shows us a faith that puts the old to death, uh, it walks completely transformed. It loves the unlovable. It gives grace beyond our ability. It sacrifices for the kingdom. It loves and serves and grows more than we ever possibly could. That's what we see in Scripture, what Jesus calls us into. And yet we come into church, and what we're told is that we need to sit still and listen quietly. Don't worry about doing anything. This is what we have a church staff for. Um, just show up and pay up. But the whole thing just gets robbed of its power. And we feel that. Just on a, on a deeply spiritual level, I think we feel that conflict. Our souls cry out for alignment. That, that we would have this, um, the word is integrity, right? The, the integrity is a funny word. It, it means integer, right? Math majors, integer. What's that? It's just a number, right? A whole number. Um, so uh, when you, when you apply a math principle to integrity, what you get is that uh, it is one whole number. It's not a fraction. It's not a part. And so integrity does not mean I am a third over here, and a, a third of me is this way, and a third of me is this way. It means I am a, a whole indivisible unit. I am the same here and there and, and there. The me that you get at work is the same me that you're going to see here. Integrity is what we want, and yet we feel this conflict of going, I'm sent as a soldier, and yet I'm not given any work to do. I'm called to be a battleship, but I feel like a cruise ship. Our souls desire this alignment. Um, anything less is confusing, honestly, and powerless, and the numbers bear out that this generation just doesn't want it. Like, I think we're, we're kind of getting into part of the roots of why this generation just goes, this doesn't make sense. If the heart of discipleship is to become like Jesus, then it seems that a faithful reading of the Bible requires us to see that Jesus' plan was to get up. His strategy is to get a whole lot of little versions of him that infiltrate every layer of society. Like if the plan is to make a bunch of little Christs, the idea is that he wants to get them everywhere and put a little Christ into the school system and into your work and into uh, your neighborhood and into your um, hockey team and into your bowling club. And like the idea is that you would become a little Christ who is a missionary into that network. God's desire for you is transformation by the gospel. However long you've been a Christian or, or however seriously you take it, his desire for you is that you would be completely transformed by the gospel. And when you put down roots like that, the natural fruit of that is that you become a missionary 
for the gospel. So his desire for you is to, is to be transformed by the gospel and to then become a missionary for the gospel. It's burnt into the microphone. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Man, it's a good day. Uh, so all of that is introduction. Let's get to the text. Uh, Romans 1, uh, 8 through 17. Uh, it's going to be up on the screen. Uh, we've done this a couple weeks. Can we stand? We're going to read it together just to show some uh, respect and honor for Scripture. Uh, so the version on the screen is ESV. If you have that, you can read along your Bible. But here we go. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now, at last, succeed in coming to you. Next. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And God's people said amen. Amen. Okay, you can sit down. Thank you. So, remember, uh, Paul sees himself as a missionary, and right off the bat here, he gives us some insight into his strategy. Go, go back, uh, maybe two slides. There's some, there we go. Um, so, he gives us here uh, some insight into his strategy. He says, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So uh, he starts with uh, an intentionality as a coach. He goes, I want to impart something to you. Uh, there's, uh, there is an intentionality to this that, that really reminds me of Jesus. If you read uh, the Gospels of Jesus' life, that he was constantly walking away from <coughs> huge crowds of people just to impart something specific to his guys. Right? He's got his 12 guys, and there's many times where he would walk away from the crowd and go, the, the, the secrets of the kingdom of God haven't been given to them, but to you, let me explain. And so he'd, he'd give them some insight. He would, he would coach and train his people. There was intentionality. But Paul here starts with that, and, but even more than that, he, more than seeing himself as this top-down kind of leader, uh, he immediately follows that up by saying, we can be mutually encouraged. We can, we can have kind of this symbiotic relationship. Uh, uh, symbiotic, the, the uh, kind of picture there is feeder fish, right? The, the huge whale like swims along, there's barnacles just stuck to the bottom of it, and, and it, like, there's a, a symbiotic relationship, both sides benefit. Or really feeder fish, they're the ones that, that like swim up and, and eat the bacteria. Um, they get enough food, the whale stays sanitary fresh for its date night. I don't know. Um, uh, there's this symbiotic thing. He says, I can encourage you, I can coach you, I can impart something to you, but you can encourage me also. God made us for, for this. Remember, it talks about 1 Corinthians 12. There's this, this picture of a body. He says, some of you are hands and arms and, and kidneys, and, uh, and yet uh, everybody has a role. Everybody has a job to do, and if you don't do your job, then, then the whole body will suffer. Um, here's a thought for you that may have never crossed your mind. Maybe your pastor needs you as much as you need him. If your pastor, uh, for some of you, that's me now, which is weird, um, but if your pastor, whoever it is, has spoken into your life and encouraged your faith and coached and guided you, um, been a, a force for change in your life. Scripture says that you can provide the same things for him. Uh, you can provide the same encouragement 
uh, and sometimes guidance and uh, community. Uh, that man uh, or woman, uh, as awesome as they might be, um, is still just a man or woman. We get in trouble when we put a pastor up on a pedestal and assume that they don't struggle and they don't need community or, or encouragement or accountability. Uh, my goal, uh, again, is not to remove the role and the importance of pastors, the clergy, but rather to make everybody a pastor. My goal is not to remove the clergy, but to remove the lady. I want to ordain everybody and go, you have a job just as surely as I have a job. Uh, one of the coolest uh, things I ever got to witness was actually, uh, a, it was when my brother quit uh, and dropped out of college. One of the coolest things I'd ever seen. Um, uh, when I was in college, I, I went to Bible college in, in Portland, and um, after being there for a couple years, my younger brother Greg decided that he wanted to come as well. And so he moved in with my wife and I, and uh, got a job. He worked with Joel for a while, and, uh, and went to Bible college. And after about a year, uh, I think after one year, he goes, this really isn't for me. Not that he disagreed with the lessons and not that he, um, he felt out of place, but he, he goes, I feel like all my big ideas are not pastor ideas, they're business ideas. And I feel like I can be just as effective for God's kingdom as a businessman that loves Jesus and is good at business as I could be as like a youth pastor or singing on a stage. And so after that conversation, he, he dropped out, uh, came back, has gotten involved in business, which uh, their business is a, a light of God's love in the community. And he's doing what he wanted to do, which is to, to use who God made him to be as a missionary in his own right into that community. And because of that, he's got an audience with, like, truck people that I would never have and that he would never have if he was a youth pastor or a worship leader with a Mohawk. Like, it's, God has called us into different mission circles. And our responsibility is to figure out where that is and to go faithfully serve. Uh, the Bible tells a similar story. There's a, a character named Lydia that we meet in uh, Philippi, Acts 16, uh, where Paul comes into town. He meets this woman and says that she is a uh, she's from Thyatira, but she also has a, a summer house and she's a dealer of purple cloth. So she's uh, she's like a fashion mogul who has two houses and she don't need no man. Uh, and <laughs> Paul comes into her life and, and he goes, you know what? You do need a man. His name is Jesus. Preach. Uh, and uh, and she, she gets on board. What a lot of people don't realize is that Lydia, in terms of, of the missionary expansion of the church into Asia Minor and into Europe, Lydia was probably one of the most vital pieces because she was rich, she was well-connected, and she was willing to give everything for the gospel. And so the first church that started in Philippi was in her house. And probably the second one was in her summer house because she's a baller. I mean, nobody. Um, this, is, this is what it looks like to be a missionary wherever you are. Like Paul doesn't come in and go, you need to quit and become a youth pastor. He says, no, you're, you're ideally placed to be a missionary to the fashion industry, to, uh, to other dealers of purple cloth. And because of her connections, because of her influence, and because of... The, the position that God had placed her in, God really worked through this woman for the expansion of his church. Uh, there's a, a quote from this book that I'd like to read. Bear with me on the page. Uh, this is a, a book that I've really enjoyed, uh, kind of a textbook on uh, missional Christianity. He says, uh, perhaps the single most significant source of the malaise of leadership in our day comes from the way in which we form leaders. For the most part, the would-be leader is withdrawn from the context of everyday life and ministry 
in order to study in a somewhat secluded environment for up to seven years in some cases. During that period, they are subjected to an immense amount of complex information relating to biblical disciplines, theology, ethics, church history, pastoral theology, etc. And while the vast majority of this information is useful and correct, what is dangerous to discipleship in that setting is the actual socialization processes that the student undergoes along the way. In effect, he or she is taken out of ordinary life and develops a kind of language and thinking that is seldom understood or expressed outside of the seminary. It's as if, in order to learn about ministry and theology, we leave our places of habitation and we take a flight in an abstract world. We fly around there for a long period of time and then wonder why we have trouble landing again. Um, I want to, uh, to confess, this is, this is a lot of my experience. I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm a vocational, like I, I, I do this. And so sometimes I find it, it really difficult to, like in my circles, I don't have a ton of non-Christian friends. I've, I've found it difficult to re-land my plane among my mission field. But you guys have never gotten removed from your social circles. You have those connections. And so I want to encourage you, rather than pulling you out of that and put you through seminary or any, anything like that, I want to just train you exactly where you are and go, along the way, you're going to become a powerful force for the gospel in your network. Even if it means that you're, you're a Lydia and you keep doing the same job and you never like you, you never get into vocational ministry or anything like that, I, I would say that is a win because you become kind of a sleeper agent. Uh, you become uh, a force for change, a missionary in your context. And I believe that's what Scripture calls us to. Our vision here is to raise up a family of leaders developed right in the middle of real life and mutually just build each other up because a church can't survive with one person contributing and everybody else consuming. We have to develop contributors, missionaries, people who, who see themselves as sent on a mission and part of something huge because we are. So he continues out of that. He says, we can be mutually encouraged by each other's faith uh, and then, uh, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, thus far I've been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, as well as, that's, uh, that's a tricky phrase. Uh, not tricky, but maybe interesting. Uh, what we're talking about today is, is learning to have this missionary mindset. And that usually makes us think of, like, uh, evangelism, primarily, right? That's what missionaries do, is they... Uh, whole Bible studies, and they, they go to the indigenous people and they tell them about Jesus. Uh, the proclamation of the gospel on fresh ears. But when Paul here talks about gathering a harvest, he says at least part of his harvest is going to come from among the saints. And then as well as the Gentiles, right? Do you see that? Uh, he goes, let me, uh, in order that I may reap some harvest from among you, and then also from everyone else. So he, he intends to, to bring a harvest out of the people that have already been harvested. I love this. God's desire for you and his plan for you doesn't stop when you hear the gospel and join the team. He doesn't stop pursuing you and his power doesn't stop transforming you. I think in a lot of ways we, we have an error in our thinking here. Uh, we think of transformation as a single event. We think of submitting to the gospel as just a single point in time. But God says, take up your cross daily. God's plan for you didn't stop the day that you took up your cross the first time. His desire to see his good news play out uh, in uh, our big picture as well as our daily picture. Uh, the Detlings just had a baby. They're not here tonight. Uh, I'll give them a break, I guess. Uh, they, they had a baby like two days ago. Um, it's just beautiful. Um, they have been eagerly waiting for her for nine months, ten months, I guess, if anatomically correct. Uh, but when we visited last night, we, we took them uh, to Chimichangas, because we're best friends. Um, and uh, they just kind of had it packed away. Like, we waited ten months for this, eagerly awaited 
But now she's here, and whatever. Uh, was not at all what happened. That would be terrible parenting, right? Because the moment that the, that the, the baby, Kenzie, joined the family is not the moment that, that her parents forgot about her or stopped pursuing her. Her parents are going to take joy in every phase of her life as she starts to, uh, to crawl and to eat on her own. And as she, like, first boyfriend, I can already see Jeremy just, like, loading the gun. Um, they are going to take joy in every phase of her life and growth and maturity because what they want is not just to produce a baby, but to produce somebody who's mature. And so in the same way, God doesn't stop pursuing and building and calling us the day that we become Christian. But the larger part of our life in Christ takes time. And so we can draw a harvest out of people that have already been harvested. I think for the most part, we can apply that to ourselves. Like we, we, we go, yeah, all right, I'm not a finished product. That was one moment, but God's continuing to work on me. We get that. But it sometimes is hard for us to apply that to our missionary work. Right? Go with me here. Um, can we apply that to our, our, our missionary activity and say, well, yes, it's, it's good to evangelize to people that have never heard the gospel. Like that's right now kind of all we think of as missionary work. But at the same time, we can also re-preach to people who have heard it, and that is just as much missionary activity. Sometimes that person is ourselves that we need to, to re-preach to. Uh, but that is just as much missionary activity as it is to find somebody that's never heard the gospel and proclaim it to them. But God has called proclamation in all seasons and to all people. When our, our friends, our brothers and sisters, forget who they are in Christ, we can text them and remind them. And that's missionary work. To proclaim, like, you're a new creation. When they forget that God is bigger than their problems, we can be present in their lives and we can encourage them. And that's missionary work. When they forget that God has a plan for them, we can point it out in Scripture and go, this is proclamation of good news. When they forget that God will right every wrong and fix every injustice, we can speak into that, and that's missionary work. Preach to each other. Preach to yourself. This is the work of a pastor. This is what I mean. I want to ordain all of you as pastors and go, this is the work of the pastor to preach to yourself when you need it, to preach to your Christian brother and sister when they need it, to preach to the people that have never heard it when they need to hear it. And this is a responsibility that each of us have as the member of the body, and we can't pay somebody else to do it for us. Like, that's what clergy is, right? It's we basically are paying somebody to do the parts of Christianity that we don't want to do, don't have time for it is. Think about it. God, the, the things that a pastor does, preaching the word, ministering to the poor, visiting the sick, praying for people, encouraging. Find me the verse that says that's a pastor's job and nobody else's. It doesn't exist. God calls Angie to, to pray for people and to visit the sick. And when, when we try to pay somebody else and go, well, pa pastor's doing that. I'm off the hook. That's just as silly as, as like, well, can I pay you to be faithful to my wife for me? Because God called me to that. But I don't know. I don't have time for it. I'll just pay somebody, right? That's, this, is, this is how silly it is to go, God called me to this, but I'll pay you to do it for me. God called me to righteousness. Can I pay somebody else to take that off my plate? I can't. The Bible tells me to put my sin to death. I can't pay somebody else to do that for me. Now, to be clear, the New Testament talks uh, about offices, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. God has wired us in a certain way, and, and, and leaders need to lead. But at the same time, I can't take any of your responsibility off your plate. As, as much as I might pray for people, that does not absolve you of your responsibility to pray for people. As much as I might visit the sick, that does not take that off of your list of responsibilities. God gives us three tools for our ongoing sanctification. He gives us his Bible, the, the Word of God. He gives us his Holy Spirit. And he gives us his church. And the church needs to rise up and accept that responsibility. 
that God is using you as a tool to accomplish his purposes. This is not a cruise ship. And we do ourselves and we do the kingdom a really big disservice when we think that it is. Uh, I think we need to be aware that in uh, a lot of ways, American culture fights against this missionary mentality, right? We live in the land of automatic garage doors and big back, big fenced backyards, where uh, we're experts at just knowing just enough about each other to be cordial, but we, we really don't want people to truly know us. Um, everything in our culture seems to prioritize individualism. Uh, we want to let people work things out on their own, uh, mind your own business, I'll keep out of it. Uh, but the truth is that we are better and we're closer to the, the scriptural ideal when we allow people past our locked doors. When we can share our life and strengths and weaknesses with one another. And in that we can start to see a, a closer picture of the true church. When we can share dinner with people uh, and just encourage them and bear their burdens with them and love them uh, in whatever season that they're in. Maybe even if that season is, is one of opposition and we're just not on the same page and, and we start to see a real picture of the church when we can still love and, and, and be with one another, bear with one another, serve one another. When we can call each other uh, and say, I'm really struggling. I need you to preach to me. I need you to remind me of who am I. That's when we start to see the church at work. And this is what Paul means in verse 15. If you go to the next slide, um, Paul says, I am eager to preach. And he's not talking about getting into like his three-point sermon. Paul is a great preacher, but this is not what he's talking about. Um, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, I'll, I'll go ahead and read that. Um, actually, you know what? That's up on the slide, too. There you go. Um, First Corinthians 2, he, he's talking to the church in Corinth, which he has visited. He has spent time with them. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't use big words, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Keep going. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is when, when Paul says, I'm eager to preach to you. He's not talking about a sermon. He's talking about, I want to be weak and tremble with you. I just want to be a disciple. I want to follow Jesus in proximity with you as you follow Jesus, and that is preaching to Paul. You preach first with your life, and then with your words. I want to make this really clear. You cannot neglect either side, right? The, the Preaching first with your life, and then preaching with your words, you can't just drop the ball on either side. If you just talk, and you never share your life, and you never love somebody, then the Bible says that you are a clanging gong. You're just a symbol, like a, a crash of a symbol. Nobody wants to hear you. But on the other hand, if, if all you do is, is live alongside people and you never vocalize, you never use the words of the gospel, uh, then all you are is just a good friend. You're not a pastor. You're not a missionary. You're just like a neighbor. And so for Paul, his weakness, his trembling, his grieving, his fear became the beginning of a sermon. And he can live next to people uh, and, and he can mourn and grieve and preach through his pain. And then in the middle of that, he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You want a demonstration of, of the Spirit's power? You want to know that the gospel's true? Look at a man who on his worst day goes, I feel great. It's been awful circumstance. And this dude has been shipwrecked. He's... In the middle of his shipwreck, he got bitten by a snake. This is how bad things are going. He, he got stoned, and, and not with weed, he, he had rocks thrown at his head until they thought that he was dead, and then they threw him off a wall to the extent that it's like, let's just leave the body for the crows. And then when he woke up, he's like, take me back in. I'm not done yet. This dude, on his worst day, goes, in my weakness, I'm strong. 
That's the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And that opens the door then to go, this is Jesus whom Paul preached, crucified and raised on the third day. This is an open door for the gospel. And this is the kind of missionary work that you guys are perfectly suited for. You're already in the spot. You're surrounded by people that need to hear. And whether they're never heard before or they need to be reminded or they need to be reminded again. Perfectly positioned for this kind of missionary work. Live next to people. Grieve openly if you're grieving. Celebrate openly if you're celebrating. Just be disciples together. And what that does is it opens up the door for, for the right words. And maybe you feel uh, ill-equipped when it comes to the right words, so call somebody. I got all kinds of words. Call me up. Put me in. Um, Paul says, I'm eager to preach, and I don't think he's talking about words. This is why he continues in verse 16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of Christ for salvation, first to the, the Jew and then to the Greek. I'm not ashamed because this is God's power on display. And it's on display most in my weakness. God's power is on display most when I'm at peace in the middle of a trial. God's power is on display the most when, I'm, when I demonstrate integrity and I don't have to. When I have righteous anger towards sin. When new believers come to faith and are transformed and they walk away from addictions and sins, God's power is on display. And when somebody who's been a Christian for 20 years chooses that today I'm going to obey again and then submit again, God's power is on display in that person in that time. It's on display when we open up our homes and our dinner tables to Christian brothers and sisters. And it's especially on display when we open up our homes and our dinner tables to people that disagree with us. This is the most impressive thing that I've heard in, in years. That in, in the middle of Syria and Turkey where ISIS is, is rampant, the, the church's strategy, it's really silly, it's dinner parties. That, that where ISIS is recruiting like mad from these people that are kind of unaffiliated. What the church in, in Syria and Turkey is doing is going, come over and have dinner with us. Try and cut my head off after that. God's power is on display when in the natural ebb and flow of life we, we celebrate the good times and we simply just try to survive the bad times and all of it we say, God is glorified in my weakness. I'm strong. This is where Paul goes, I'm, I'm coming to Rome, and this is what you're going to get from me. And that's what they got at the end of Acts. We see that he showed up for two years. It said that he was on house arrest. He couldn't even leave his house. And yet, he shared everything that he had with the brothers in Rome. And so this is our call as missionaries. If you're transformed on the inside, it's going to lead to transformation on the outside. We can't pretend that it doesn't. to encourage you and, and, and sympathize with the fear that naturally comes with going I have to be a missionary and I do mean have to scripture pulls no punches 2 Corinthians 5 go and read it you are uh, a new creation now like literally the next verse he says you are an ambassador as though Christ were making his appeal through you be reconciled to God this is God's own words you are a missionary and I know that what that awakens in us usually is fear and rebellion. But God's at work in you on a daily basis through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit hasn't lost the battle yet. And so the only thing that stands between you and being transformed on the inside and on the outside is you. What God wants for you is transformation. What God is going to do in you is transformation. Now the only thing that's objecting is you. So knock it off and get out of the way and allow God's power to be manifested in you. Um, just in a practical sense, give yourself a baby step. And go, if we were to look at, at our roots again, what makes strong roots? Look at those again. Go, 
in terms of my gospel centrality, am I really centered on the gospel? Do I know it? Can I tell it to somebody that asks? Can I preach it to myself when I need to? And if the answer is no, give yourself a baby step. Go, I'm going to read the Gospel of John this month. You read like half a chapter a day, you'll get there. Maybe your baby step has more to do with um, your community. That part of what helps us to grow and mature in faith is, is being surrounded by Christians. If you can't think of who your network of Christian support is, then get into one. Come to a house church. Come and talk to me or, or Jake or, or Keenan. Um, we've got house churches all through the city on different nights and, and even mornings in the, in the week. That's community just waiting for you. Just show up and share a bagel and we'll be friends by the time you leave. Maybe it's in the area of daily rhythms. Like statistically, most of you don't have a daily time in Scripture. Just going with statistics. That's a really simple baby step just to go, I'm going to give myself 20 minutes in the morning. I'm going to pray that God would reveal something to me through the scripture. I'm going to read it. I'm going to write down a couple thoughts. And I'm going to do it again tomorrow. And even if that means I have to be late for, for dinner or it means I have to get up a couple minutes early, that's what I'm going to do. Like This is a baby step that you could make this week. So do it. Do it. That's it. I told you, I could have quit half an hour ago. Um, real simple. Um, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to sing really more in celebration of what God has been doing uh, in your lives, that God is good, God is faithful, and we can depend on Him. Um, and then in a couple minutes, we'll, we'll take communion, and uh, uh, I think there's dessert downstairs, too. I know there's dessert downstairs, too. Love you, church. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for uh, just a chance to be together in one room and sing together and honor you together. And uh, and I pray that this would just be a catalyst for uh, for what you have to, to, to do in our lives this week. Pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in a powerful way that we uh, would have no choice but just to get out of the way. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray for